Hello, my name is Janice B. Gordon. This is Scale Your Sales Podcast. Welcome to the Scale Your Sales Podcast, listed number nine of 42 best podcasts for every sales professional in 2021. I am Janice B. Gordon, the customer growth expert, recommended by LinkedIn as one of 15 innovative sales influencers to follow in 2021. In today's episode, my guest talks about blue chair, red chair, and the table. This is how to improve your negotiation approach when we're talking to procurement. Now, as salespeople, we're always talking to buyers. So this is a particular skill you need to learn. But my guests also had this fantastic analogy on diversity. So make sure you listen to this episode. My next guest is founder of ROI 10, focusing on negotiations, procurement and sales. He has worked for Mars Inc. for over 17 years in a variety of procurement functions. He is also lecturer of business economics at Fontys University of Implied Science and author of, and this is a brilliant book you all need to get hold of, The Other Side of Sales. So welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, Mark Schenkis. So welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, uh, Mark Schenkis. Correct, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? All right, hey, we'll get that. <laughs> this bit isn't in the main recording, but I wanted to test it out. <laughs> um, so Mark, I'm particularly interested in, I really wanted to get you on to see the other side of sales, which is the name of your great um, book that you've published. And I know... With all the your years of experience in procurement, this is something, and you know this because you've built the whole business around it, this is something that salespeople absolutely get wrong. So what is the main things that salespeople get wrong when they're approaching the pu- 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 <laughs> approaching procurement? Yeah, I think I think this is uh, I think the, the number one thing that I've experienced and I've probably seen about a Oh, probably about a thousand plus salespeople throughout my career. Um, it's like and this is a bit, perhaps a bit traditional, you know, how how salespeople used to work is that they like to s- send information rather than ask. You know, I, I always say you have two ears, one mouth. I think that's exactly the ratio in which you should be using it. And I think salespeople still enjoy hearing themselves talk. Um, whereas, you know, if you listen to what a customer really wants, you get so much good value and in information. I think that would be the number one thing uh, throughout my uh, throughout my career basically that i would uh, would address there you know listen two yeah. ears one mouth <laughs> that's the ratio exactly <laughs> um, i think that salespeople have the impression that procurement they're difficult um they're non-compliant i mean that's obviously from a sales point point of view but why do you think that there is a, a real rub between the the two and it seems like there are two extremes yeah, correct. Although, you know, I, 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 there is not a real big difference between sales and procurement. I mean, we're, we just happen to sit on the other side of the table, but we both have objectives to fulfill. We both have targets to achieve. We both know how to negotiate. We both have interpersonal skills. 
we both have families, you know, so we're not that different. We just sit on the opposite side of the table. And, and this is often where it goes wrong because we, we tend to think from inside our own head rather than the head of the other person. And um, I think over, over time, um, you know, I think if, if I think about, about 20, 30 years ago, sales was like the number one function. They knew exactly how to do it. They were really skilled. They had good sales stories, sales pitches, and procurement was pretty much non-existent in those days. You know, were, procurement was not professionalized or not professional at all. Um, I think that changed significantly in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, procurement became a, a, a function. Um, they started to, to focus on self-development. Uh, uh, you know, they started to, uh, to to work on tools and, and stuff like that. And it became, you know, they, they, they often now have a seat at the table in the in boardroom. So um, I think this, there's a huge difference and that's a real complexity for salespeople. They don't know how to deal with that you know, because procurement was so easy 30 years ago, they're very difficult now. And I think just sales hasn't evolved to the same level as procurement has over the last 30 years. And I think this is where um, most salespeople struggle. They just struggle to really understand the other side of the table. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, your book does, does a brilliant job in bridging uh, the, the two together. Now, tell me more about blue chair and red chair and the table. Can you explain the premise of, of this to actually help to improve the negotiation between sales and um, buyers? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it's, it's, it's so simple that it makes it really a fantastic tool for people to, uh, to actually use. And um, so when I told you to October blue chair and red chair, I, I use the same terminology indeed in my, uh, in my book where um, so a blue chair negotiation is a very cold negotiation. It's very, you know, it's, uh, I think we call it a win-lose kind of negotiation. It's competitive, you know, it's when you're buying something on, uh, on eBay from, from another party, you know, you just want to get the best price and the other one wants to get the best price as well. So it's very much short-term cold negotiation, you know, getting immediate results, often focused on price. A red negotiation, when you're sitting on the red chair, um, you're very much focused on the relationship and you're building something together. It's like when you're negotiating with your family where to go to on holiday, right? So you still want, after that negotiation, you still want a, a relationship with uh, the other party. You know, you still care about the other person. It's longer term. You want to think about win-win because you don't want one to win and the other to lose because they will not feel happy. So it's a very different approach in, in negotiation style. And um, the color of the table in the middle between both parties. So you know, typically a buyer and a seller, they each sit on the chair at a table. The color of the table is determined by the color of the chairs. So if both parties would be sitting on a blue chair, you would have a blue table in between the both of them. It's simple, it's a very straightforward negotiation. You know, it's just price and you know, uh, deal done. A red table, it's a bit more complex, but it's also when two people are on a red chair, then you have a red table in the middle. It's really where you want to look at you no know, win-win rather than, you know, if you have a piece of uh, pie, you just you know, a blue table, you're looking at you know who gets the biggest chunk. You're trying to cut cut up the pie. In a red table, you're looking at how can we grow the pie? How can we get you know uh, more value in the relationship? Now the complexity is when you're talking about blue chair and red chair. You have one party is on the blue chair and the other one is on the red chair, and this is where most people struggle for obvious reasons. I'll tell you why in uh, in a second. Because the color of the table. And with the blue chair and the red chair, the color of the table is blue. And people don't often recognize that. And what happens when the table is blue, the blue party wins and the red party loses. 
because red they're thinking you know i'm investing into a relationship and i want to build longer term partnership etc etc and all blue things is i want to take 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 and get more from me these are the, the the most difficult and most complex negotiations now if i would ask any salesperson so if you think about your complex buyers what color chair do you think they sit on they'll immediately go blue yeah they're all blue 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 because they're tough they only want to talk about price but as a seller you're often on the red chair. You do want to build that relationship. You do want to build a partnership with your customer. And this is where you know um, um, they get it. Uh, they get it wrong. And um, what this, what the key thing is here is is to recognize. I think this it starts with recognizing, recognizing that yes, you're on the red chair. The other party is on the blue chair, but the table is blue. I'm losing out here. And most people get frustrated. Most salespeople get frustrated by the fact, you know what, I, I, I can't seem to get through to the buyer. Correct, you can't, because the buyer has no incentive, you know, to be red and make the table red. They have all the incentive to be blue because that's what they're focused on. And this is where I see most salespeople struggle. Yeah, when, when they're on the red chair and the buyer is on the blue chair, that's when it goes horribly wrong. So how do you turn the buyer red? Yeah. Because that's going yeah. to dictate the table. And it's interesting because salespeople think they dictate the table, whereas actually they're not. It's, it's, it's the, the buyer. Yeah, actually, actually, both are dictating the table, the color of the mm -hmm. table, because it's, it's influenced by both. Because you can also have a buyer being red and a seller being blue. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's more uncommon, actually, in, in real life, but it does exist. So it, they both dictate the color of the table together. Um, so actually, so when you are, your, as a seller, sitting on the red chair and your buyer is on the blue chair, you have two options, actually. Um, one option is, indeed, as you mentioned, you want to try and get the buyer to sit on a red chair because when you're both red chair, the table becomes red. So that, that's option one. The other option would be to become blue yourself as well, knowing I'm negotiating in a blue table, so I might as well be blue as well. However, both have consequences. So, you know, um, if you want to decide to become blue yourself, it's easier because you are making that decision. It's, it's something you actively do. However, it becomes cold. The relationship com becomes cold, it becomes into a price negotiation. So there, it has consequences. Um, Turning the buyer red is a bit more harder to do because it's something you can't influence. It's something the buyer has to do. So you need, well, you need, um, I just said it, you need to get them motivated that red is a better chair to sit on than blue, which is not easy. That's hard. Yeah? And, and I think this is where most salespeople are actually struggling how to do that. I, it's, it's fascinating. When you put it in such simple terms like this, then you absolutely get it because you mentioned the word incentives and then the buyer has to, is the buyers in control of changing it, but they need a reason to change. And so actually the information you're giving the buyer isn't about the deal and the negotiation, isn't about the table anymore. It's actually about the relationship and how you incentivize the buyer to decide to change. Exactly. So, and that's exactly what I you know. It's it's one of your initial questions. What are the one things you should do? Is really focus on what the, what are the buyers' interests? Because if they don't have an interest to change color of the chair, you can try to move heaven and earth. It's just not going to work, right? So, so it's it's around finding out what do I need to do to motivate a buyer to start to sit on a red chair? How do I how do I create that kind of relationship? Because then you're negotiating at a red table. And that's when you can get into like value building together and, and, and uh, making a, value, a, a proposal that, that is actually fit for purpose for both parties. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I think this is, this is the key thing, you know, making the other party red. Yeah? 
It's interesting. I was um, recording yesterday and uh, we had a conversation um, about incentivize this was the customer and, and the buyer is your customer if you're a salesperson it's still still yep. your, your your customer and actually standing in their shoes and really understanding their world and what their needs are and the pressures they're under so it's actually it's but um sellers are know to do that with buyers i mean sorry sellers know to do that with with customers they know they have to. And it's interesting why they don't just change the focus and do that with with their buyers as, as well. You know, when you think procurement, they're not thinking this is a customer. They're thinking this is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I it's said why. a mindset change, isn't it, really? Yeah. It's still your customer yeah. and you need to understand their world and you need yeah. to build a relationship with them as an individual. As you say, they have children and families and, you know, exactly. they're just people. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, you know, and, and it's, 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 it's almost... Um, it's actually, uh, when you think about it, if, if I think about my 15 years in procurement, I've only once, and I literally mean I only had once in my life uh, when a supplier came to me and asked me this question, which I think is so fundamental. And literally in 15 years, I had one supplier ask me this, is Mark, what are your ob objectives this year? What are your objectives this year? What are you trying to achieve? Which I think is such a fundamental question because if you don't even under, uh, ask that question, how do you know what the buyer's real interests are? Yeah. You know, you'll see tenders or RFPs being launched, but what are their real interests? You know, what are they trying to achieve? Is it is it just cost? Is it payment terms? Is it service quality? What, what, what is it exactly? Your innovation? You don't know unless you ask them. And I, I really, literally, once in my lifetime, I ever heard a, a a seller ask me this fundamental question. Well, that's. Asking the question is, is one thing. I think the second part is the follow-up. What are you going to do with that? Because you know, even if you ask that question, how are you going to make the buyer successful in their job? Which is which is a, a very different perspective that sellers usually have. They want they want to be successful in their job. And I think if you think about if you make your buyer successful, you will become successful as well because they will really value the fact that that, that you're supporting them and therefore they will support you. And that's that's how uh, that's how it works. Just these two steps, you know, asking. Uh, what are the objectives? And secondly, you know, helping them to achieve those objectives. I think that's how you become, how you create, that's one of the options you do to create a, a red environment in the, in the relationship. Yeah, 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 fascinating. Really, really interesting because it's something that sellers are doing with their customers. For some reason, as soon as you think procurement, you know, the gate comes down and you don't think of them as customers in exactly the same way. Because if you were going into a customer environment, you would nowadays, especially, you're not selling a product, you're actually solving a problem. And the problem yeah. has wider consequences within the whole organization. So you've really got to understand what is the business objective and then the department functions and who are the other um, stakeholders that are, you know, the decision-making unit around the table yeah for some reason the mindset changes as soon as you think uh procurement yeah and i think one of the problems that is the rfp the tender process yeah this is the the barrier how how can we change that because no i haven't met i don't know about you i've never met a seller that loves doing an rfp yeah. loves going through a tender process they absolutely will do anything to avoid it yeah 
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, sometimes you can avoid it. You know, if you have a really good relationship, sometimes you can't because it's company policy. So, you know, it, it, and I, you're absolutely right. They don't lo- like it. They, why don't they like it? Because it's it's a risk. It's a risk of losing business. And I know if, if there's one thing sellers are allergic to, is it's just, just a thought of losing business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because they have targets and targets this year are higher than last year. So actually losing business means you need to, you know, uh, fight hard to get uh, to get back. And um the thing with, with, with RFPs is that uh, procurement has become much more professional at it. And, and one of the things they're doing um, is just saying, I'm the single point of contact in the organization. Yeah, that's what they say. So whenever they have a, an RFP process, they'll say, I'm the single point of contact. So don't reach out to anyone else except me. And there's a reason why they do it. I think this is a bit of interesting insight for your audience. There's a reason why they do it. Because the rest of the organization is not as commercially, commercially uh, savvy as buyers are. If you think about the entire organization, if you think about blue and red, buyers, when they launch this kind of RP, are very blue. I just want to get the best price, the best quotation out of this, this, this process. The rest of the organization, like all the internal customers within your customer's organization, they're very red. They want to build partnership and relationships, whether it's, it's marketing or HR or IT or uh, finance. They really want to work together or, or supply or, or manufacturing, you name it. They, they really want to build a relationship with the supplier because it makes their lives easier. So they are very red. A buyer knows that their entire organization is red except them. So they feel like I need to be a gatekeeper. Otherwise, you know, they're going to be too warm and and and, and cuddly with my uh, <laughs> with my uh, with my uh, potential suppliers. So so that's why they keep them away from everything. However, I think it's important to note that whenever there's an RFP process, it's never the buyer alone who makes the decisions. So it's always their internal customers are part of that decision-making process. So if you do have a good relationship, then um, it's important to, well, actually throughout before the RFP process to, to maintain that good relationship because when a tender or an RFP process comes up, they're the ones rooting for you in that process. The buyer will say, hey, I have a great offer from supplier B. And the other ones will say, but we really enjoy working with supplier A. And that's exactly the kind of conflict you would like as a seller in that process, because otherwise you're going to have to be putting in the best price to, to satisfy the uh, uh, the buyer. And actually, you do want this kind of conflict in that organization uh, to make sure they're rooting for you, even though you don't have the best price. Because that's when all the other elements are coming into play. And it's never about price, quality, service, innovation, uh, you know, just ease of doing business, invoicing process. There's so many more things that are important that the rest of the organization recognizes. A buyer does recognize, however, typically held accountable for savings towards the end. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's a, bit, a bit of a problem, isn't it? Because they're not the end user. And you can understand their role, that they will be rewarded on how much they can save the organization. Correct. So the finance, love them. (laughs) Yeah. But the actual end user, even within the the customer organization, that the relationship between, you know, I deal with um, sales leaders so if they're buying something in from, from me and they have to go through this, this process, even they internally see this as a problem, as a barrier, as a block, because having to fight, they're not the, the uh, procurement is not the end user. So the, yep. the, who, the end user knows what type of quality and product that they want and feels that they shouldn't have to fight for it because they're yep. the ones that are using it. So how do you reconcile that? How can you 
you want that um, uh, friction within the organization, but you actually want to, to work in your favor. Correct. Yeah, yeah and, that's, and that's where you're not never selling just on price. Because what, what, a, um, uh, what a buyer typically does when they send an RFP, um, and it, it just, just put yourself into the shoes of buyers. So they have an RFP. Imagine there's like 10 variables, quality, service, innovation, etc. And then there's price. How do you make a comparison? You can't. You can't really make a comparison because how do you quantify quality? How do you quantify service? Like the difference between 95% service level and 96% service level. How do you quantify that? That's hard to do. And buyers agree, it's hard to do. Yeah? So all innovation is, is even more vague. You know, how do you, how do you put innovation, put, put a number behind innovation? But they have to use some kind of data to make comparisons. So how do you otherwise know that supplier A and B you know, one is better than the other. Where do you base it on? So what buyers typically tend to do is to say, you know what? All these other factors, they're like equal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, um, so th that makes it easy for them just to focus on price. Now, the rest of the organization doesn't agree to that. Yeah, for a buyer, that would be ideal. Just focus on price and the rest is pretty much equal. But the rest of the organization, no, this supplier has a better service here. So then it becomes a bit of a, a way to the discussion in the end. They say, okay, quality is 25% importance, service is 20% importance, price is 30% importance. And then they, they start weighing all those factors in into the decision-making process. So, um, you know, I once had a supplier, I won't mention a name. Internal clients, they provided um, uh, excellent service, excellent quality. So they knew that whenever a tender or an RFP process came up, we would have to fight hard you know, to convince our internal clients to move away, even though it was more expensive. They said, but they have such excellent service quality and everything else. I don't want to stop using them. And that's like exactly the kind of friction that you you, you, you want to have. But uh, in the end, and um, it's, it would also be key, and I think that's answer your question, is to make sure that the buyer sees that added value, saying, yes, I know I'm a bit more expensive than some of the others. However, this is, this is the reason why. And what, what I typically tend to do is, again, I'm, I'm trying to listen to my, um, uh, it's, it's also, I'm, I'm also, in, I know I'm background in procurement, but running my own business, I'm also in sales now, which, which has proven to be an interesting insight. Um, for me, the customer is always right. If they say, yeah, but I want it cheaper, I said, you can get it cheaper under my conditions. And my conditions means, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I'm, 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 I'm going to reduce my service level. I'll have one per less person in customer service. I'll have this and this. You know, if you want it cheaper, I can always get it cheaper. But then you don't have 24-7 service. You have 24-5 service or whatever, right? That's fine. If they say it's too expensive, say, great. What can I drop? I'm yeah. not saying, no, this is the price. Should be, no, what, what should I drop? Mm -hmm. Tell me, yeah, if, if, you want, if you want me to, uh, to, to provide, if, if price is so important, I'll take stuff out. Mm -hmm. So they're never wrong. They're always right. It's just repackaging your proposals all the time to make it fit for purpose for everyone. Yeah. And if you do it like this, then you know a buyer will have a hard time selling internally. Yeah, we've got a great price now, but service level has dropped, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, no, no, we don't want that, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then let them have that discussion. Let them start to validate what they want. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, after that discussion, they'll come back to you and say, this is what we want. All right, this is how much that costs. Brilliant, love it. Absolutely love it. I mean, the idea would be to to understand what is the weighting, to understand who are the other competitors that are, you know, yep. submitting the uh, in the tender document. 
all of these it's like state secrets isn't it no it is, <laughs> but yeah. if you have a good relationship which is what you were talking about mark if you have great relationships you might be able to circumvent and get some of that information yeah. which so yeah. you know who you're competing against and what their strengths are yeah well finding out about competitors that's typically the best kept secret by buyers because they don't want people to know you know not, not always but mo mostly i think understanding you know um how the decision making process works like you know what is important i think it's a very very valid question to ask yeah, to ask mm -hmm. your buyer saying right how are you going to make your final decision what are some of the key elements you'll be focusing on because i want my proposal to meet your needs tell me what you're looking for you know so it's, it's actually quite a valid question and as a buyer i would have been open to share that with them saying mm -hmm. right it's going to be based on this this this, and that yeah. i suppose it's not being afraid to ask the questions you may not always get nope. the answer but you know there's no harm in really getting as much information out of the the buyer as possible yeah, correct. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm going to change it up a bit because this has been absolutely fascinating. We always talk about diversity, but I don't know about diversity within the procurement in, in environment. You know, what does that I know a lot about sales, but perhaps I'd love your perspective and on, on whether things have changed and what is changing and if there's more that, that needs to be done. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a great question. So, and I uh, my my reference point actually is uh, working at Mars. You know, the the, the chocolate company. That's my uh, my fifth year background. Uh, I think you know I, I left Mars, but it's still a fantastic company in terms of also in terms of diversity. You know, uh, actually we had I think. 60 plus percent females in procurement in those days so more females than men working in procurement which um i thought was uh, was really good also actually leadership teams were mo mostly female in, in during the days that i worked rather than uh, the mills so um i think mars has always been really great you know at, at managing diversity they've been open about it you know they've been very uh, transparent about it all the things that they've uh, they've done um and, but I, I see it, you know, it's, it's, there's still a long way to go, right? So let, let's, let's be honest, it's not like something that's, uh, that's fixed, but it's not just Mars, it's, it's anywhere in the world. But, um, you know, baby steps, but I think it's, it's, it's moving into the right direction. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I feel it's going into the right direction, but uh, yeah, still some work to be done. It's and interesting. It, I wonder your view on the culture because of the, the makeup, the, the diverse makeup within, you know, Mars and companies like that. Yeah, yeah. So when, when when I was so so how I explain diversity to people, people like diversity, it, and it's it's almost become a negative word, which which I think is it's it's ridiculous. It's actually a great word, but people don't see the the real advantage of it. So, and I, how how I say like if if you're a person and you have to draw a circle, every circle is one person, and if it's like if you can make create a team of people. Are you going to draw eight exactly identical circles so you get a really thick line because that's that's not diverse, right? So it's just all the same people, or do you make a nice painting where there's a bit of overlap, like I don't know, in the shape of a flower, like a circle in the center, and then all kinds? Of, and that's what I love because you know, as, even as a leader, I think you're stupid not to focus on, on on diversity for the reason that you know, whenever I had a project coming my way because you know, always stuff coming in, I was I was interested, like who would be the best person for that? If I had eight the same people, how do I find the right person for that? Or like I don't know, but if there's eight different people, I could really use their strength, their uh, their background, uh, age, experience, or or not being young, or whatever. You know, you could you could look at it from from so many perspectives. And I think 
if you're a leader and you're not advocating diversity, I think you're seriously missing out in, in getting more from your team because there's always some somebody good at something, right? Yeah. And the more diverse your team is, the more you can get out of your team in the end. And uh, I've always appreciated that. So, you know, I was always reflect like, okay, who do I have in my team? You know, like, like half men, half women, half, uh, you know, older, more experienced, half young, oh, uh, different nationalities, you name it. There was always a mix of people and, and, and that worked so well, you know, and, and I really enjoyed it because in the end, as a team, we, we thrived as a result. We, we learned so much from each other. If you have eight identical people, what's there to develop? You know, you're just seeing the same thing. And uh, no, that, that, really, uh, uh, that, that really worked well for me. Uh, uh throughout my career yeah. I love your analogy in fact Mark I might steal it you know the flower and if you're doing a circle what's the point in you know creating the yeah. same circle I absolutely love that so yeah if you hear me I will I will quote you I got it from okay. you because it's absolutely fantastic it's really I love the way you think and you talk you're you know you're you're very visual with the you know the red chair and the blue chair and it really just strips out the complexity and makes it really really simple so thank you very much much um, for that. So Mark, if you're on a desert island on your own, what would be the one thing you would take with you? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, but I, I guess if I'm being extremely practical here, <laughs> I would bring a survival guide or something like this because I'm, I'm, I would not be very good at it. And I, you know, in order to survive, uh, uh, I think I need to get some water, some food and shelter and these kind of basic things. But I, I have no clue how to even make fire. So I think I would get a <laughs> Just a book, a survival guide. I like books. I like reading a lot. You know, it's part of my development. So I think you know, having, having something to read, but also something practical to read. Yeah. Uh, I think that will be very useful for me. Yeah. All right. The survival guide is on its way. We're going to make yeah. sure you put, you're taken care of okay. and you survive until you've picked up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope not to ever strand somewhere, by the way, but that's another story. So I'm hoping I'm not getting a, a one-way ticket to a desert, desert island or something. A desert island. <laughs> Well, now we know your worst fear, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how can listeners get hold of you, Mark? Yeah, so uh, various way. I think the easiest, you know, if you just um, uh, go to my website, which is uh, www.roi-10.com. So ROI stands for return on investment, ROI 10, because I guarantee, you know, tenfold return on your investments. So mm -hmm. I'll make sure that you get at least tenfold uh, um, the money you invest in me, a, a tenfold return on that, which is a, a hard guarantee. Um, so ROI-10.com, um, you'll find all my contact details there, emails. You can even know, uh, uh, download uh, uh, the 10 insights for my book if, you, if you're interested in that, or just find a link to buy the book if you're uh, interested in that. So uh, yeah, everything is, uh, is there that you, that you need to know. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure speaking to you. I've, I've learned so much and I'll put all of the links in, in the show notes. So thank you for being a guest on Scale Your Sales podcast, Mark. Yeah, thank you very much, Janice. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scale Your Sales podcast. If you like this discussion, feel free to listen to other episodes or watch the caption show on YouTube and subscribe to future episodes. I would really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review on iTunes. Thank you.